imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? You could say that. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Welcome to Team Rabbit Hole edition 242 with Scott Onstott, Secrets in Plain Sight, Virgo Canadian and recreational mathematician. Whether he's seeing patterns in nature or dissecting cityscapes and monument, monuments, Scott has the ability to convey beauty and truth through shape. Well met and welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. Th thanks for having me. For sure. You're one of these people that um, I'm sure I harassed at one point on Facebook when I was coming to terms with reality. Uh, and maybe, uh, you, I don't remember. I know specifically there was a SyncBook person that I had hit up a lot. Um, I'm forgetting his name now. But uh, I became aware of you. Well, I'll get into this in a second. We'll talk about how you became aware of you in a second. But basically something we do on the podcast, and it's really funny to me that you're episode 242, which is Palindrome. Um, of 42, which is this whole Jupiterian synchronisticism thing. Um, this That's is Alan, isn't that Alan Abadessa Green's thing? Yeah, 42 of, minutes. Uh, 42 he was minutes. the 42nd epi episode. He's been on here a few times. Uh, Znor, people like that. I love those guys. Um, but anyway, so it's episode 242. That reduces down to eight numerologically. So we're going to say the strength card. I face my fears with the no, strength. No, it, it, it goes to six, doesn't it? Four plus two. Is six? You could school me. I don't care. Two plus four is six. Plus two is eight, right? Yeah, yeah. It's two hundred forty-two. That's the thing. It's well, not two hundred forty-two. Yeah, yeah. Right, We're right. already there. We're at the palindrome already. It's even yeah, better. yeah. <laughs> it is eight. You're right. Uh, so yeah, I was like, wait, where are we? Uh, so it's the strength card. I face my fears with strength of love and patience. It's about trusting yourself, letting your inner endurance shine, using your power to embrace the amazing person within you. You have everything you need to succeed. Uh, it is that Leo card when we have both the Sun, Mercury, and I think Mars in the last degree of Leo right now. Raphael, what angel card do you have? We have the angel number 56. It is the angel of fortune and support. Belonging to the principalities, this angel helps favor the acquisition of prestige, wealth, and spread of major philosophies. And the tarot it associates with the Two of Pentacles and the affirmation goes, I jump into the heat and passion of life. So I'm curious, Scott, um, maybe nothing, but maybe everything. What resonates? What syncs up for you? How, how are you feeling those cards? I like that last card. You, you just mentioned the uh, angel card, right? And um, right. because I just wrote this book. Actually, let me just wheel over here and grab it. Um, it's all about philosophy. And that is kind of what resonates with me. I wrote this book, Sacred Geometry, Philosophy and Worldview. And so I was just thinking about that, wanting to get the word out there and spread the word and about that. And it sounds like that angel card is perfect for what I'm trying to do. 
yeah, and you're, you have the strength to do it now. I mean, maybe at some point it was an idea and now it's published. Now you can push it. So it's like, you got it. And then just yeah. to reinforce that point, because there's a lot written there and I'm not reading all, but professionally for Discord specifically in the channel section, this is by Brian Law, who did this, these decks. And here it says, it is easy for them to shine in foreign lands, understand different languages, cultures, and customs. They have great willingness to work with spirituality, always for good. <laughs> That's what's up. So, Scott, I know you're in Canada, um, and we've never formally met or anything, but we, we, you know, you can go as long in depth or as brief as you prefer. Um, give us the whole call me Ishmael perspective. Uh, where were you born? What culture were you a part of? When did you start kind of seeing reality in a certain way to crack the code that you've done? Um, we can talk. It says you went to, I think, UC Berkeley. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. Um, yeah. We could talk about all that. I kind of want to get a kind of um, a bird's eye view, if, so to speak, of uh, who we're talking with. So we can kind of go from there. Um, and like I said, you don't, I mean, you're a Virgo son, so don't feel like you have to make a list that's perfect um yeah. i'm just kind of getting the you know the general idea here so the conscious yours well, I, tell us I, about yourself i'm very i'm very detail oriented because i am i am a Vir i'm actually a triple virgo sun moon and mercury and virgo and so absorbing huge amounts of information is really natural for me and i think that shows in my secrets in plain sight film it's like a five and a half hour two volume download of just tons of information um but uh, you asked for my uh, kind of like my bio is what I'm taking from what from you're saying. Single right? cell to Scott Onstott. How did we get here? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, all right. I was born and raised in California. I lived in California for 33 years before emigrating to Canada. I'm 50 years old now. And I live in BC on a remote island called Cortez Island. Um, I was, uh, I went, when I was in university, I studied architecture at UC Berkeley, uh, worked in the field for a number of years in San Francisco, doing mostly corporate offices. And then I kind of had a change of career when I decided I, what I really liked was design and, um, and learning. And so I decided to become a teacher and I taught over a thousand students at the Academy of Art and several Bay Area universities. And that was all in AutoCAD and 3DS Max and stuff like that. Um, then I removed up to this remote island in, you know, early what precipitated that? Like clearly you're, you know, you, yeah. I'm an American, now you're not. So what happened? Well, um, I'm still an American, a US citizen by the way, but okay, I, cool. I have family there, but I live here full time. Um, what precipitated that was my wife and I uh, got married in the year 2000 and we were looking for a place to buy a home and the the Bay Area was just really really expensive and it's only gotten more so um, back in the 90s I had an apartment in Pacific Heights and I think I paid I paid $700 for a two-bedroom apartment and it was like that's crazy now now it's like $4,000 or something yeah. you know and uh, I lived there when it was relatively affordable but now it's it just kind of priced me out and and we you know to buy a house in the bay area we both have to have really pretty good high paying jobs and we just decided to scout out our other options and we went all up and down the west coast until we found this island where my wife's uh, college friend lived at, uh, and so we that's how we found out about it and um 
yeah, I've been here. I didn't know if it was like a political statement because it sounded like right around 2000, 2001, you left or whatever. So. Well, it was it's interesting when we, I remember when we drove up here in the U-Haul, um, George W. Bush had just kind of started the next phase of the Gulf War. And there were people on the bridges saying, support our troops and everything. And supporting the troops is great, but I'm not overly into conflict and war. And so I was just like, I'm so happy to get out of this fucking place. Excuse me, but um, oh, speak freely. We cuss whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, it was uh, it was a good move, um, and it's only gotten crazier, in my opinion, in, in uh, the United States since then. And I, I almost don't even recognize the country that I was born and raised in now, just because of the politics of polarization, kind of driven by algorithms and stuff. And now it's like people can't even agree. Well, they certainly can't agree that the world is round or even that the sky is blue. You know, um, I think it's kind of crazy that there, there's very little common ground that people have now. Well, we could definitely get into the uh, philosophy of the zeitgeist at some point. So you did the Berkeley Architectures thing. One of my favorite bands, Air, uh, Parisian duo, um, which stands for Amour, Imagine, and Rev. One of them, I think, is an architect and he's a musician too, but you can see kind of CAD scans in some of their album work um, of human bodies and stuff. Uh, how do you think, I mean, were you, let's put it this way, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Were you architecturally thinking and then you found a niche where that like fleshed out or did that really train you up in the way you should go kind of thing? And you're like, now I see the world in terms of structuralism. Well, I'm already thinking as an architect because that's the way I was trained and that's what I was doing for a business. And so I, I think that way. And then when my interest shifted after moving to Cortez Island, it sort of was a time when I read more books and had more free time and started exploring some esoterica. And then I started um, noticing patterns, geometric patterns. And, and I just got more and more into that and, and started using Google Earth to measure distances between sacred sites and look up alignments and stuff like that. And it kind Do you remember of like the thing that like struck you as the the you know the the white rabbit down that hole like what yeah was, for me know? for me it was um, actually studying crop circles which I started in the nineties uh, drawing them up um, you know from the photographs I would then try to figure out if there was some how how would I construct that diagram myself and so like uh, deconstructing that, crop circles basically yeah so I did like hundreds of drawings of crop circles. And for me, the, the question of, of who makes crop circles is kind of interesting, but it, it's kind of beside the point in a way. If you just want to get into the geometry and study the geometry, then there's a huge wealth of geometry that's in the public domain that's, that's just right there in the fields every year that um, is fascinating. And what I felt like is that kind of upgraded my consciousness of um, – working so much with geometry and and drawing uh, these designs kind of opened something up in me and it allowed me to see things in a different way, I think. And looking back, that's kind of what I attribute it to is intensive drawing of, of geometry. It just it's happened funny. to be through crop circles. And I don't know if that's some kind of, you know, Sink. divinely inspired thing or not, but, or whether I'm just, tracing the designs that some uh, 
maybe some college students drew in the field or something, but uh, they're really good drawers. I mean, it's amazing. They're really genius level if that's the case. So um, I'm already sensing a resonance. I'm binging uh, Star Trek for the past few months because I've had time to do so. And I'm, I'm 36. So Star Trek Next Generation was like, oh, I grew up with this. Deep Space Nine is amazing. I don't know if you're into Star Trek. I oh, I'm a big so... Trekkie. You're speaking my language. Okay, I love so, the next yeah. generation. Yeah. Um, but, um, in deep space, Nine, I don't know how familiar with it. I just got through a, uh, basically an episode where, um, the outpost commander, I'm forgetting his name totally now. Um, Cisco, Cisco. Thank you. There you go. You are checking. I, I, you know, fifth season, I should have this on Pat, but I don't, uh, Cisco basically starts getting visions of this Bajoran, um, sacred site and he kind of contemplates it long enough and then basically starts having, not psychedelic experiences, but emissary kind of, you know, spiritual guidance things. Um, I want to kind of put a pin right now in the um, crop circle thing, because I'm sure Raphael will want to talk about that maybe a little. Um, but what were your ontological presuppositions going into these? I mean, it sounds like, I mean, are you a material reductionist where you're like, I don't believe in supernatural things? You were playing with esoterics, but it doesn't sound like you're into aliens necessarily, though you're a Trekkie. So I'm kind of trying to get my head around like what you see the world as and there's no like definitive answer here so you don't freak out about that i'm just kind of getting my head around your yeah. uh, perspective so um like most people who go to university and study physics and math and science and architecture and um you get kind of the the package of of atheism and uh, materialism you know and so i i swallowed that pill then and then it's been a long process of kind of realizing that that philosophy has a lot of holes in it a lot of problems and so I would say that now I'm an idealist, which is uh, described in this whole book, you know, that I wrote. It's all about the philosophy of idealism. And, um, and I, sacred geometry is a catalyst that kind of was working on the back burner of my mind for two decades. And all along, I was wondering, why is why is working with these simple geometries so amazing? Why do I feel like high from drawing this thing? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. And so I was kind of on an intellectual quest to figure out like, why does geom why could something as seemingly mundane as geometry have this palpable sacred quality? that anyone it's accessible to anyone if you explore the qualia or the quality of geometry i'm not talking about using geometry to design a house i did that professionally you know but it's using geometry for geometry just to feel the geometry to go into it to to meditate on it it's that type of exercise that i was doing it didn't have a practical purpose so i would call it a hobby right but that hobby is really amazing. And so it took me years to kind of figure out this philosophy and why it makes sense and sort of um, it kind of crystallized in my mind, I'd say like a year ago of this whole like ontology and epistemology and teleology, all these things come together in a whole complete worldview that sacred geometry implies. And I think the longer you work with it, you unpack these things, you know, it's like um, Euclid with his elements that were the basis of, you know, learning geometry for like 2000 years. 
if you look at the, the quantitative aspect of geometry, the mathematical use of geometry, it's all in there. It's all implied in there. And we just have to unpack it. And, and that's what Euclid did 2,000 years ago, you know, with all the theorems and stuff. It's all, it's all like in this encoded in this system. But also encoded in that is the philosophy that arises out of it. And it's amazing that all of that is built in to this universal language that's the same everywhere in the universe, presumably. Um, I, I don't know how familiar with Manly B. Hall's um, secret teachings of the ages you are, um, but this is kind of what you're talking about. Reminds me at some point he's talking about the history of thought in the academy. And it's like these people were, you know, thought everything's the fire element. And then these people are quaternarians and these people are Trinitarian. You know, it's like, it seems that um, we, you know, uh, as Marshall McLuhan would have said, it's like uh, we're shaped by the tools we make, right? So um, how do you, and I'm kind of jumping into weird deep waters here already, but I'm just curious, how do you look at the cultural, binding is too strong a word maybe, but like, um, are, do you, how do I put this? Some cultures are very Trinitarian, like Celtic kind of circles doing their thing, and then some people are um, jamming on uh, different shapes, like the Chinese are like, let's get this thing totally square, and the sacred city and all this kind of stuff. Um, do you think these are expressions of the divine through the material? Like, how are you looking at our process of math? Like, I, I'm, I mean, I'm asking huge, big, weird questions. You can tackle this however you want, but it's like, are we math? Like, are, is is reality just like a basically a simulacrum of polyhedra and stuff that we're like spirit is like swimming through? Or and and how do you think cultural kind of um, identities? Like, why is there even a why? Like, cultural identities resonate with certain things, like certain cultures, like seven chakras, and other people like, no, 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 12 tribes of Israel, 12 zodiac. Like, how, there may be no, a real fundamentally, like, uh, tidy answer for that, but you see where I'm kind of going with this. How the language of math transcends the people that are making it, and yet we're learning through it, if that makes sense. It's not like, how do I, it's not like these things fell from the sky necessarily. People found them in nature and, and stuff and kind of reflected this stuff. But then it seems that like, like what you experienced where it's almost like a, uh, an initiation, if you want to put it that way through maths. Um, and some people, you know, whether you're going to the temple and you get it or not, like the people designing these things clearly got stuff. Um, whether the masses understand it, they're being initiated just experientially. I'm kind of rambling. I'm a Gemini. I tend to do this. Your Virgo nature is like, dear God, shut the fuck up. But uh, um, what, what are your thoughts on anything I'm saying? How do you look at like the nature of number? Is it a transcendental thing? Is it an interpretive thing? Um, I think David Charles Plate, we've talked to him a little, uh, not on here, but I've talked to him at points. And he's like, there is this essence of four out there. It's very platonic thinking, right? It's like, there's this essence of four out there and things that are four-ish appear four or whatever. Um, what is your kind of philosophy on number ratio form in the dream that is what we're experiencing? Okay, well, I don't know if I can cover everything, but I'll yeah, just don't start feel bad rambling. I just vomited you can, all over you. So I'll just start rambling, and you can, but it, you can jump in at any time and and move me in, in a different direction if you like. But um, I think that um, number and uh, in, in mathematics is the you know study of of symbols and manipulation of number. It's it's all a very universal thing, and we have this hubris, which makes us think oftentimes that we are the, the discoverers of math and that humans have made it up. Uh, but um, 
time and time again, we find out that these things we supposedly make up perfectly describe reality. And, and how, would, how does that make sense? That, you know, like something that humans came up with out of nothing perfectly describes the way the universe was made, the law of gravitation, all, all, these, for, all these forces, E equals MC squared. It's all too perfect. And there have been some really smart physicists and, and mathematicians and philosophers who have kind of been shaken by that. I'm thinking of a, a, an essay that the Nobel physicist um, Eugene Wigner wrote called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. And he wrote this, I think, in the mid-20th century. And he was just saying, like, mathematics is perfectly describing these natural phenomenon. And it doesn't really make sense because he was la laboring under the assumption that we, that we made up mathematics. Now, I think the, the, another viewpoint is that we, we discover mathematics, that, that we, we encounter it and, and we, we stumble upon it. And oftentimes mathematicians uh, discover these things and then uh, don't really know what they're for um, until later when they realize, oh, what the square root of negative one will just, it's impossible, but we'll just, what if we just called that I? Just for crazy, we'll just play with this idea that the square root of number of negative one could be something, and we'll just call it the imaginary unit. And then they go with that, and it unlocks like all of complex analysis. And we wouldn't have jet engines without that. We wouldn't. A lot of our modern technology is based on that that assumption that the square root of negative one is something. And just recently, they they've discovered that. Um, what is it? I think it's the, um, is it the Schrodinger equation or some physics equation is only really, it only really fully represents reality when you include I in it. And so there's some realization that I is somehow essentially part of reality. It's not just a fanciful thing that we, we came up with, but it's actually fundamentally part of, of reality. And so um, all of this talk, is the realization that mathematics is already there, okay? But mathematics ultimately is, a, I see it as a language, okay? It's a language of manipulating symbols, manipulating ideas with constants, with these ideas. We're playing with these ideas, right? But all these, all these ideas and this language, all languages are necessarily invented by consciousness, Okay, you don't just get Spanish in a bucket. Okay, Spanish was the creation of lots of people's lives and, you know, throughout many hundreds of years and the language evolved. And it was clearly a, just a, a way of saying uh, of consciousness recording uh, symbols for things that we understand. When you when you see an apple, you, you know, you, you give a word to that in whatever language you're speaking. But the real concept is your, your experience of the apple, your qualia of that. Okay, and so mathematics is the same, where it's, the, it's, a, it's obviously a language designed by consciousness, okay? But if it's this universal language that transcends humans that we discover, who or what made that language is the big question. It's the $60,000 question or whatever. Right. And I mean, this I, me yeah, to I believe that, a little. 
Uh, where it's yeah. just like, I mean, at some point they were thinking about this in a very abstract way. I don't even know if we're, I mean, you're obviously geared in terms of astrological composition and culturing and stuff to be dwelling on these thoughts, but obviously most people are very unaware of these realities just because we don't value it the same way as the Greeks or whatever, right? So it's like we're kind of uneducated, miseducated these days, or the priorities are kind of askew. It's like productivity in the workforce in a certain consumeristic model as opposed to like understanding nature, understanding yourself. Um, if uh, I mean, I was saying that Tractus and Pythagoras, but like he's kind of considered this mystical, you know, guru dude, um, popping hot with a well-formed philosophy, it seems like almost kind of like the emissary thing, channeling information from a higher dimensionality. Um, do you get really esoteric and woo about it like that? Or do you, t I mean, it sounds no, like you were, I'm very, to say I'm, those I'm are very much an, an earth sign. I'm very grounded. Right. I'm very much about practical reality and everything. And, um, and so uh, that's how I approach things is not, I don't go off the deep end too often. And I, I try to always ground it in, in things that are verifiable. That, that isn't just, you don't just have to take my word for it, but you can, you can experience that yourself and, and say if I'm full of it or not, you know? Um, Which brings up the point of consensus reality versus like person. I mean, because you were playing with esoterics, I think you might know the language of magic being kind of um, ineffable in a sense. Like verifiability is almost not, it's a tricky thing. Like Crowley and people like that are like, do this X, Y, Z, and you'll get that effect. Um, but it seems like in the in, um, Walt Disney Imagineering kind of sense, um, actually on the last uh, episode, we were just pulling random cards and I got Buckminster Fuller, um, the buckyball and geodesic domes and stuff like that. Uh, it seems like certain people are conduits for levels of consciousness, but obviously this presumes a non-democratized reality at a level. Like certain people are going to like, Scott, you're designed to be a channel for sacred geometry. And as much titillation as, you know, the shapes and colors and stuff give me, you're, you're a prophet's too strong, but it's like you're channeling the knowledge of that in a very particular way. Um, I guess I shouldn't be offended in your temperament and in, in, in disposition of this knowledge, um, but you are a triple Virgo, as you said. So I'm like, okay, cool. This makes sense now. I'm like, all right, there's a reason you're like, maybe these are kids just doing pranks with fucking beautiful math in the crop fields as opposed to going we're here the event is happening or you know you're not jumping to the the pisces and pisces is in the opposite zodiac so it's like you're not jumping to the the infinite unknown um but i'm kind of wondering where your rubber hits the road with the esoteric magic of things like how did you get into that little pocket of reality because it's a whole shebang of earth-shattering paradigms if one is ready to go into those territories and start looking at yourself, you know as above so below as within so without this horror fractal ouroboral hologram thing we're in well, but I think that sounds that, very lofty. And so I'm like, how, how do you weave those lofty waters of like imagination, but you tether it, it seems. So how are you playing that game? Well, it's easy to play that game because the more you work with geometry, the more you realize it is this universal language. And when you, when you start to become well-versed in the universal language, you realize that this, this is the language of all, all levels of all beings, not just physical humans on planet earth but presumably spiritual beings that are you know they may have uh, you may be able to communicate with them mentally but you're not going to have a email exchange with them and you're not going to have a handshake with them but that doesn't mean it's not real uh, there's a whole invisible realm you know that where these minds exist in my philosophy 
And I think that like geometry a sphere kind of thing. Um, do you think kind of a mental plane? Well, I think that being an idealist, that all is mind. There isn't a special place in physical reality where these things are because reality isn't physical. Okay, reality is an idea. It's and consciousness we're, we're potentially. I mean, you're a pan right? Yeah, we're we're exploring this certain idea here on Earth, and and we're very attuned to the interaction we have with the visible mind, which is representing the Earth and the all the atoms making it up. But the whole universe is built in the intelligible language of consciousness, which is geometry, and that is the kind of the key that allows you to communicate with the intelligible realm and the invisible realm with beings that don't have a physical presence here. And this is the problem for scientists are all rolling their eyes because they think the only reality is what we can weigh and measure in the physical. And I think that's very important. And that's, what's given us computers and jet engines and so on electric cars. But there's a lot more to reality than that. And, um, that's a good first approximation and it's taken us so far, but I think we're very much impoverished. If we think if we are under the blinders that we assume that all of reality is merely physical because it doesn't really explain consciousness. It doesn't explain your first person experience, you know, at all. Because if you look at the human brain, it doesn't make sense that it would be conscious. It just seems like a bunch of parts you know, and how are, how do we get consciousness out of a bunch of parts? This is something that Leibniz was grappling with in the 1700s when he was saying, um, it's like, imagine going into a mill with all the levers pushing on each other and so on. That's like the brain. You go in there and you look at the microscope and you see all these things happening, but there's nowhere, nowhere in that mill can you explain a perception. The ghost and the machine. And yet you have ghosts. perceptions. Yeah. You're, you're experiencing that all the time, you know, but we can't ever really explain it by saying, oh, it's just these electrons that are moving around your neurons. Okay, well, that doesn't really matter even. It's just that's a story. That's an abstraction. It's so, funny because it's... Oh, just, go ahead, Rafael. Yeah, just so I'm asking you, this is only tripping me up synchronistically, and I'm only vaguely fam familiar with this idea of the I and as an imaginary number, right? That is what you explained earlier. But it almost seems it's like That's a right. parallel. First of all, it sounds like I, so like the I. And wasn't the way you explained it historically that this is almost like the um, unwanted occult revelation even contained within the orthodoxy of science or mathematics? That's the way how it sounded to me. Maybe you can elaborate a bit on that, if that well, my assessment is correct. With, with mathers, they have really bad marketing in math. Okay, because they, they came up with an idea of the square root, like the square root of two. It's a number that goes on forever. And all, all it, and they, but they call those irrationals because the reason it's not because they're just, they're crazy. They don't know how to think clearly. It's because you can't take a ratio. You can't say one over two with those numbers. You can't, you can't take two numbers one over another. That's a ratio. You can't do that and come up with the square root of two. Um, so like one over three is one third, right? And the decimal is 0.33333, but that's, that's not irrational. 
you can make a ratio of two numbers and get it. But the square root of two is irrational. And same with the imaginary numbers. They have an, another kind of bad marketing because it sounds like, oh, that's just imaginary. It's not even real. It doesn't make sense. But but it it's a totally like grounded thing that's that's part of reality. It's practical. It's not, it has a praxis. The way they've classified it is they have a, a thing called real numbers, you know. And so, well, it's it's different. It's an imaginary number, right? So um, we have to get past the labels to see the truth that's there because the labels are just like when you say apple and you hold up the fruit, it's just a label that you've applied culturally to the fruit. And no matter what culture you grow up in, no matter what you say, when you see this fruit, everybody knows you. it's a fruit that you bite into and it's good. Okay, so that's the same thing with math. Even though we have these crazy labels, imaginary, irrational, um, things like that, those are just labels that we've given it. And the, the reality that it's referencing is universally true in all cultures and presumably to aliens and other places in the universe or, you know, but I'm sure they call it different, different names, but it's the same thing. And, and you asked earlier about aliens. And I think that if we, if we met aliens who didn't just have a different cosmetic nose or ears, like on, on Star Trek, but if they were very alien, like they were octopus people or, or God knows what. I was going to say, like the arrival, only, they're a processing reality. Yeah, like arrival. They're, let's say they're like those creatures. How are we going to communicate with them? We're going to either try music or geometry, right? And what are those? Music or geometry is the expression of number and space, and music is the expression of number and time. But they're just expressions of number, aren't they? And that that is the universal that we can all presumably understand because it comes before the universe. That's that's the, the language in which the universe was made. Was geometry number music these things come before and you know like a lot of these ancient philosophers told us that but we did we think of them now oh those people are crazy they didn't know they didn't have modern science and i think we're just a little bit too um enamored with our current technology yeah the illusion of progress although it's real the but deeper it's, truth. we yeah. get obsessed with the progress um to the extent i mean you know uh, how would I put it? Like, I mean, Elon Musk is cool, but he's more of like a poster boy for an idea, whereas his engineers are doing the real work, right? Um, I'm, I'm yeah, not sure well, he's he, smart or whatever, but he's, a, he's kind of an engineer mind too. But um, and I, I have nothing against that. I, I'm a fan of technology, really. I, I read like tech blogs, and I love it when new things happen. I'm really excited about electrification of cars, and and I think that we have a hope of of reducing the damage we're doing to the climate by in innovation and, you know, but it's really a lot about changing your consciousness about changing what you think is okay to do. You know, I think in, in some years when, when cities are like largely all electric cars moving around and then there's going to be like this one, like diesel truck that still exists that goes by and people will just be like, that's a crime. That's just a freaking crime driving down the street. How can we allow that? It's just spewing out these toxins all the all over the place. And I think in, in the future generations, they're just going to be blown away that we would tolerate such things. And yet that's our daily reality now, right? It's just like, oh, my God. 
Um, well, it seems both and on the one hand, we're like, you know, in the image of God, cutting edge, Mc, Terrence McKenna, like, wow, look at us, novelty apexes. Um, but at the same time, we live in ignorance. Uh, you the know. apex of the Kali Yuga. So I just have to ask if you say you also have an architectural background. Have you heard at all about uh, Tartaria or have you investigated, let's say, old style architecture? Because at the very least, you have plenty of old images, at least around 1900s or something or maybe earlier. And all these things where you see cities entirely illuminated. And there the idea is that it could very well be that sacred geometry also with churches and so on may have other type of, let's say, energetic frequency type effects, which may on the one hand affect health positively, for example, but may also be some kind of an energy transmission system. Have you looked into this at all or investigated like this ratio well, shape? I have a friend, where the I have a friend the road? who mentioned that. Yeah, no, I haven't looked into that. I, I kind of think that's a little crazy, honestly, but um, I think that like if there's a photograph, an early photograph, the exposure time could have been a very long time to get all the light on the on the plate. Um, it doesn't mean that they had consciousness light. I think that's really, and where is that now? Um, yeah. Maybe just to make one simple, give one simple example, maybe you're familiar, I mean, of course, with the pyramidical shape, right? And as far as I understand, even if you just construct a pyramid, even out of wood or something like sticks, it can already change whatever it does exactly, I don't know, but basically increase plant growth or whatever. So basically yeah. like these shapes, they do have an effect. And if they do, and that seems to be quite well proven, not just beautiful and relaxing, but also something more discreetly measurable, then mm -hmm. somewhere there, there could be a, a crossing onto what we would now call electricity or other things. And the other thing that comes up is, I think, Michael Tellinger, Ubuntu movement, who did all this research in South Africa, I believe, these huge monolithic sites. And then also, I think, running around with some kind of counter or like electrical measuring devices and finding these, you know, strange effects, which at least partially seem to have to do, of course, with the material, but also with the exact structure. And of course, very oftentimes very sacred, let's say geometry that's being presented. Yeah, I, I don't, I would, wouldn't really call that electricity, but I don't rule out that it could be some other phenomenon that we don't really have a language for. Like it might be what they call radiant energy or or some right, we need right. another word for it maybe um but there's something going on there and certainly with pyramid power you know the, you make a pyramid shape and it you know sharp, does everything from sharpen razor blades to dry out fruit and preserve it to all kinds of weird things it does and um you mentioned also like churches right and i think if you go into medieval churches in europe or elsewhere um, and you, you feel this amazing quality of the space. And that, yeah. you know, as an architect, I can't ignore that. That's really palpable. And I think like the, builders of, the builders of those spaces um, just intuitively figured out what really moves people. And when you go in that church, you, you make this association that, uh, that, that's somehow connected with the religion, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's kind of like advertising. Like, yeah. you know, you see you see this young, vivacious girl talking about how wonderful this bleach is, and you're like, I want to get that bleach, you know? And, and you just make this association that, oh, you know, 
but I think in in religious architecture they, they they're wise to make really moving buildings because then you're like uh, sign me up I want to be in that religion that's just an awesome building you know and uh, and and so that's just smart to to make buildings that resonate and uh, you know there's a lot of examples of geometry uh, in the natural world that sometimes it's unexpected like um, the North Pole of Saturn has this gigantic hexagon, you know, that's this pattern that they're not quite sure how to explain it, why it's there, but the clouds are all moving, you know, it's a gas planet, right? But it has this persistent geometry that's always there in the, in the shape of a, a hexagon that has kind of rounded edges, but it's certainly a hexagon. And it's fascinating, like, that geometry appears at the scale, the planetary scale, you know, and it, if you look at atoms, they're little geometric gems, you know, the, the probability distributions of the electrons only occur in these very precise geometries. And when you re, when you really look into quantum physics, you realize that what we're looking at is purely math. There's nothing else but math to the atom. There's no thing there. It, it's it's all mathematical relationships. There's no like little thing that oh you, we found it. That's the building block. Well, they just keep going. They go well now. There's quarks and quarks are really strange and they're and they have all these mathematical rules they can follow. But it's it's very elusive when you get down to that level. Um, but it's all obeying math. And you so saying- to me. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. I don't. Sorry. I'm just finishing that idea that it's just kind of pointing to the fact that these are ideas that are running through the universal mind. Uh-huh. That's and, where I was actually going to go. Like Brahma's mind. Yeah. Like obviously, various cultures. Jonathan Edwards, who's a reform theologian of uh, Protestantism, back in you know, I think he went to Harvard at 17 or something like that. Um, he was kind of pooed at some level because he was basically saying we're machinations in the mind of God, which is very much kind of a Brahma thing, but like it had a, you know, an Eastern flavor and Western thinking. So they didn't like that too much. How are you looking at, uh, I mean, you, is it just a matter of what works? So it persists or do you think there's like actual play involved? Like, was there, a, I mean, a, a time when like certain shapes just weren't, and then it's like, well, I imagining, like, how do you look at the evolution? Like, is it, is it a, how would I put it? Are we becoming aware of things gradually that are already there fully, or are things evolving in your estimation? Um, well, that's, that's that like sense. both. So I think that math is like this whole, I like to liken it to a, a building. It's like this gigantic building, and we've only explored like three rooms. And we're like these, we really understand these three rooms out of like thousands maybe. But, and we have a sense that everything is interconnected in this building. Somehow it's all, it was all like designed beforehand. It must've been like the math on what they call this thing called fine tuning. Our universe only exists like on the knife edge of all of these variables have to be just perfectly tuned for us to have this universe, to have atoms more than hydrogen and to have, you know, all the things that we have are just extremely finely tuned. Right. And, and yet they come about through process of perceived chaos. I'm not even saying it's ultimately chaos, but what we see is evolution, you know, there's, 
there's I don't, I'm not a material reductionist, but they have. If you can't see the pattern, it always looks like chaos. No. Yeah. Right. Well. Um, so I didn't mean to interrupt you, Scott. Keep going. Oh no. Um, just that. Uh, where was I going with that? Um, the universe is finely tuned. Yeah. And the people, rooms. some physicists will say, "Oh, it's because we have a multiverse. We have an infinite number of physical universes." Well, that's there's nothing that violates the concept of parsimony or Occam's razor more than just saying, "Well, we have an infinite number of universes, so anything's possible." Um, I think that's kind of a cop out, um, really. Um, I don't see that 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 really explains anything, um, but. Nevertheless, we, we're left with this problem of fine-tuning. And if you believe that the universe is this thing out there outside of you that is all mechanical, that has no design, no teleology, uh, then you, you have trouble explaining that. And so you, you might refer to infinity, uh, affinity of universes to explain it because no one can wrap their mind around that. But if everything is consciousness, then consciousness will naturally fine-tune itself to have more interesting outcomes, right? So like if, you, if you're in a dream and you become lucid, you're going to steer that dream to more interesting things that are going on, aren't you? You're going to say, oh, what if I could fly? And then all of a sudden you take off. Uh, so you have, you have that ability as consciousness to choose more interesting outcomes. And so instead of enjoying a universe that has only hydrogen atoms in it, you wanted something more interesting, so you you fine-tuned it so that it would have the diversity and multiplicity that we experience. And that's happening on so many levels, I think, that we can't even – we're only glimpsing the first three rooms of this edifice that's already there. And I but should the say same- the first three rooms at a certain time of their construction because even – this gets into that kind of new age thinking, but it's like our universe matters, but it's part of bigger webs of being too. If that makes sense. I mean, it's like, you know, Gaia and Earth is a system um, and that has certain conditions, I guess you could put it for uh, actualization through that system itself. Like at one point there weren't oceans and then processes happened and then the oceans formed. I mean, these are obviously models, certain kind of evolutionary models. Like if someone believes in Atlantis, they might not believe that the oceans formed, you know, through gas cooling over a long period of time from volcanic activity and atmospheres were anyway i'm kind of curious rafael if you have any uh, response to what he said uh because i think he's saying one half of the equation because rafael i've heard you be like oh the infinite multiverse but also the he's saying the highest excitement basically of consciousness is creating something to play with yeah um, i mean i think we're coming from the same place in a sense i would very much subscribe for various reasons to the idea of infinite parallel universes although not so much in my view as a cop-out or to explain something because at the same time I can very much see you know the design or that there is phi whatever this is exactly or there is these ratios in nature that I could just very well imagine that just as we have a very unique template for this particular experience created through the novelty and curiosity of consciousness of as I would say the one creator playing with itself in the very same way assuming that if there is the one, uh, there is infinite, as I like to say, you know, processing capacity or computing capacity, then why not also have infinite templates? However, exactly. and it would still I, mean I that, yeah. yeah. However, of course, for our immediate experience, obviously, it would be quite relevant to discern the templates that are most, you know, valid or that we're given in this incarnation, even maybe not consciously aware at first or, you know, very much confused about it. 
and usually going closer to that, you know, beauty with architecture, with art, even lifestyle or feng shui or I want to say um, not kung fu, but, you know, tai chi or whatever. It's all, again, seems to relate back to a certain base pattern that seems to like be very closely connected also to the vitalism of at least our experience, that if you're close to that, you resonate with that, then usually, I don't know, it's more beautiful, it's happier, or it's more joyful. I'm not exactly sure why or how it works, but like that's a, this is the way of least resistance for this particular reality. Well, I, I like what you're saying about, like imagine that your, your consciousness with infinite computing power, infinite capacity, and if, if that's the case, if, 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 if the, the idea of idealism is correct, that everything is consciousness and you have infinite capacity, then are you just not going to imagine aliens? That's just beyond, that's just too far. We just can't do that. Are you not going to imagine all these multiverse dimensions that you're talking about? You probably will, right? That it's, you're going to imagine anything that is imaginable and you're not going to have any limits on that. In fact, you're going to be interested by your limits. You're going to go to the boundary of what you think as, as who you are and what, what's, be, what's beyond that. You're always going to be trying to find that. What's outside of me? What, what defines me? The and I think that's what, that's what defines the self. Whenever you have a boundary yeah. and, and you explore that boundary, you say, oh, this must be me. And what's outside that boundary is not me. And so you're very keenly interested in exploring your boundary. And so if you have in infinite capacity, wow, that boundary is going to be out there pretty far. And I think as humans, we're really arrogant to think that we even have a concept of where that boundary is because we are, we are not authorized to talk about that. That's way too big for us, you know? Raphael's nodding. Do you have something to say? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I just want to say, uh, in a sense, you know, it's always this, you know, juxtaposition or... Uh... Interview here. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. It's, a, okay. it's a family show. We're all cool yes. here. Hi, wife. Or, Good job on the land grab up north. Or uh, some type of a paradox that whilst within the one there is this infinite capacity, I would very much consider that even the limitation we're experiencing right now, at least again in my view or even feeling, are very much self-chosen for the joy of rediscovering it and maybe recreating something new also because many things i would say can only be created out of limitation so the limitation and the apparent lack of even understanding or whatever can actually bring great novelty that otherwise at least in my mind would not even technically be possible to to create it would be unthinkable Odin on the tree of idrisel you got to make some sacrifices yes. to get that knowledge but it's there anyway, yeah. but your perception of it is through a process of, you know, limitation and expansion, basically. Yeah, I think, I think it, um, Bernardo Castrop was the first one I, in my, as far as I know, to, to describe consciousness as a series of dissociated alters within a single mind. So we can study this in microcosm in the dissociative identity disorder within human individuals that, that, have this pathology where they have multiple personalities, if you like, inside of their one brain. But imagine that universal consciousness on the macrocosmic scale is this one mind. And inside of that mind, it has dissociated alters or different boundaries within it. And each one of these boundaries is like a space that 
consciousness experiences and says, oh, this is, this must be who I am. I, I'm, I am, I have these capacities inside of this boundary. And, and then you, you start to perceive yourself in terms of your limitations. And then you have an, a, an area or scope of action in the world or that is based on those limitations. And, and I think that's where we get the idea of the ego or the, or the I am comes from consciousness inhabiting this boundary and saying, this, this must be who I am. And I think we all experienced that when we came into the human vehicle as a child and you're like, oh, this must be who I am. And you just learn that um, organically as you grow up. It reminds me a lot of uh, Pixar's Inside Out. Uh, which is very you know Jungian and Buddhist in a sense, where it's like um, I don't know if you've seen this movie; it's really well worth watching. But basically, like it's an anthropomorphization of like emotions. So there's joy, anger, sadness, disgust, a couple things running the show, and each one thinks they're sentient individuals, um, but ultimately um, their individuality is dependent upon their axiomatic, like their relationship to other things. So it's like joy is the opposite of sadness, right? And you wouldn't, I mean, it's the whole yin-yang thing where it's like you wouldn't know this without that. Um, we wouldn't know what like matter is without black holes potentially. I don't know how the structure of fabric time space works, but it seems that um, I think Grant Morrison, who's a chaos magician, was all all in the wave of like, we're all schizophrenic. Um, we've just forgotten it in a sense. It's like we have multiple levels of selfhood and then cultural norms kind of guide us to things that are more productive for the needs of the culture or whatever. So at one point, you know, you've got people, yeah. you know, being like dream time is amazing. Let's all go eat ayahuasca and like trip or whatever in, in the Amazon. And that was the cultural norm. And they still kind of do that there. Whereas now we're like, let's be making machinery and <laughs> whatever we're doing. So yeah. it's requiring we have a real narrow range of expression, right? A very yeah. narrow culturally acceptable bandwidth that we, that we, traverse within our culture but but it's practical the reality Virgo, is I think way bigger. it's function it helps us function in the level so if, if i'm sitting here like you know having yeah. a disassociation about my past life as a tiger and i'm trying to like go to the bathroom it's going to be really hard i mean that's why doing psychedelics which i'm very much a proponent of you'll just go like to the woods sitting matter <laughs> yeah it's like you can't just i mean you can have a trip like in a very chaotic environment but you're going to start like um one of my when I started getting back into LSD in 20, we'll say 13 or 14, probably right around when I turned on to you and the whole sync book crew, um, I came up at Denver's mile high stadium, no sync there. Um, and I was like having my thoughts entered it. Like I was like, Oh, I hear your thoughts. And I hear your, it was very disorienting. Um, and I think in a weird way, there's no wrong turn. So it's like, you're going to experience things, even if in the, in the model that you're just an idea playing out the, the you know the action ability of the neurons firing within the the mind because in a sense it's like not anything goes um it's a paradox i mean it's like anything goes but it's like certain things will work better over time whatever that is uh i'm rambling jesus christ i should not have even gotten on the conch but uh what are your um how you're very practical you're, you're this virgo stuff so i know you can see this very succinctly how do you I mean, basically, you're saying you're a pan. It's like when you say idealism, it's like idea. You're in the idea. Is that what you're kind of getting at with that? So when I say spirit, there's not like you're not dichotomizing it in terms of material versus spirit. You're saying it's an involution of spirit or consciousness into material form. Well, actually, in, in my philosophy, there there are three main levels. There's there's universal mind, which is a domain that I call the intelligible, and this is where mathematics, number, uh, the transcendental philosophy 
comes from um, of truth, goodness, and beauty out there in the, the universal mind. And this kind of antedates the universe. It comes before. Um, and then within that universal mind, there were two primary dissociations. You have the visible and the invisible domains. And so the visible domain would be um, the, what we think of as science, of the things we can weigh and measure, the world, the universe, all these things. The invisible would be where the soul is, which is who, what animates your, your body. Uh, and, and so the, the, the experience that we have is actually a complex interrelationship between the visible and the invisible domains, between body and soul. And there, there's a lot of crosstalk between them, and they learn from each other, and they play off each other, and and they're always partners in this game. And so um, I'm seeing that as I think that the the thoughts that you have actually don't exist in the physical realm; they're, they're invisible in your mind, and then they're passed into the physical neurons of your brain, perhaps in the microtubules where the quantum information collapses right. and it becomes deterministic patterns that then propagate through the brain in a very measurable way. But I think that where the thoughts come from is an immaterial realm where we have the what I call the invisible domain. And so that kind of is my 30,000 foot overview of my philosophy. It does have these three parts, the intelligible, the visible, and the invisible. And um, I can dig it. to me, it Bro. kind of encapsulates it's a good way a framework to start to understand a lot of different things that go on in reality and it seems to be when the exclusion of one of these domains happens that's when real suffering and ignorance occurs so for like there's nothing outside of the intelligence of humans and we focus on certain minutiae we become nihilists if we only focus on the hyper spiritual and never like worry about the functionality of our fibonacci tesla coil bodies or whatever we might be very yeah. miserable physically and like, you know, we could fix this if you just did colloidal gold and, or whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. Ormus. Um, Raphael, did like you there's these two tra tendencies to, to transcend, to get, to get out of here, to transcend. Mm -hmm. But there's also the tendency to, um, to find God within, to find, to find um, imminence. It's called, um, mm. to find beauty and, and everything in the reality that you've been trying to escape. You see, it's, it's a tension between those two polarities. It's not one or the other. It's, it's both and kind of situation. And a lot of these questions that people come up with are actually both. And there's, you can't really say it's one thing or the other. Like when people say was mathematics uh, invented or discovered, well, it's yes. both. Yeah. And, and if I answer only one way, then it's a partial truth. And there's, there's value in the partial truth, but there's part of me that recognizes it as, as incomplete. Right. And, and in fact, all, even mathematics itself is fundamentally incomplete, which is what Godel proved in the early 20th. And um, what, the reason it's incomplete is because it's just a language that consciousness uses. Consciousness is the complete picture here hmm. and the language is, is partial and incomplete but it, it works really well but it, it's not the whole picture you know yeah um, and i think we often we often point to to that as saying oh you know we want to find where 
where consciousness is. And some people say, oh, the universe is conscious, and then we're less conscious, or maybe the atoms are conscious, and we're more conscious than them, because but these are these are materialist assumptions that, that there's something outside of you that, that where, con- where consciousness is. No, no. Um, you have to kind of let those concepts dissolve to, to really fully get the, the big idea that um, that it's all an idea and that you're an idea and I'm an idea, but that, that doesn't take anything away from the, the vital experience of these ideas and, and, and identifying with them and saying, I, I am Scott, you know, even though I know that that's just a temporary phenomenon while I have this body in, in this life on, on this planet, you know? Well, it sounds like you're digesting big ideas in a very stable way. <laughs> like, uh, I forget who said it, but it's like, you know, the the poet can smash his head through and the mathematician goes kind of crazy trying to figure it out. And you kind of found that happy medium um, holding on loosely, dare I say. I mean, you've got ideas you're holding on to, but you're willing to like let them bleed through your fingers and say, I don't know, et cetera. Um, Raphael, did you want to say something? I well, keep I have... seeing you look like you want to say something, so I'm going well, to make sure you say it. That's your interpretation, maybe, but I have uh, two particular questions. One, only if there's anything you would like or can mention about this in relation to, let's say, modern orthodox materialist science and the whole framework in relation especially to Einstein and his special theory of relativity. Because I don't claim to understand the details here, I just know there is a huge work by, I think, G.W. Müller, which is like hundred years of criticism of that because just the way the little I understand about it is that this framework very much tried to basically do away with the ether I guess that's the main point right and uh, you know establish a new framework which may work well for a few things but in your terminology may potentially mainly focus on the visible at the expense of everything else um, yeah I'd let you reply if there's anything you you can mention about that well, I don't know how to directly respond to to um, to the special theory of relativity, but I can get at it maybe from another angle, which is the the double slit experiment of looking at particles or waves and how we can see that electrons and photons and even relatively large molecules all exhibit this pattern of of if you're observing it, it will behave like a particle, but if you're not observing it it will behave like a wave. And we get evidence of that wave in an interference pattern when it actually does interact with the physical reality on a screen. And so um, the, the true reality is that, that particles and molecules and electrons and all these things are not localized. It's only when we view it that they have to become localized and they have to exhibit a concrete reality because they're entering our boundary of, of the human level of going, Oh, okay. We have to, we have to manifest this as something for the human to experience as a, a real weighable, measurable thing. But we have some hints that reality is actually not like that. It's, it's much more expansive. It's, it's everywhere. The wave is goes everywhere. It doesn't just go in one place. It, 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 it radiates out. And so rea- reality is actually this, unmanifested thing it's invisible and 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 yet whenever we look at reality with our double slits our eyes <laughs> it has to right. be turned into uh something that we would call real and and so um it becomes concrete and then we what we do often is we mistake 
the the real thing that's going on there for for our simplification of it and, yeah. and we say oh reality is purely this simplification and that makes and the us Plato's feel cave good metaphor because that, then we then we're like oh it's just that and then we don't have to worry about anything it's, it's just that but in <laughs> the truth is it's much more interesting it's it's not that simple folks it's it's way more more interconnected and here's a little thought experiment for you you know that there, there's a theory of the Big Bang, right? Where, where everything 13.8 billion years yeah, ago that's a good was one. all the way all the way down to a singularity, right? That's what they call it. And what is a singularity? It's actually mathematically defined as zero dimensions. It doesn't have a space. There's no there's no volume there. It's it's an in, it's a mathematical point, okay? And so that that would be called nothing, right? That's nowhere. And all of a sudden, we get everything from nothing. So if we can get what we call, now we're going to call it everything. But we, we know that it came from nothing, right? We know that. But how, why do we think it's something now? It's still nothing. It's still an idea. Even though it's bigger and it's expanded, it has all the dynamics, it's still an idea. You know, and and that's I think that's a beautiful thought experiment that gets back to where it all began. It came very from very Zen Buddhist. It's like the pregnant it came nothing. from nowhere. Yeah, yeah, and, and yet it's it's everything. And so we, we when we I think we're simplifying it to say that oh all of this everything that we're in, inhabiting on this planet is really something. Well, it's more interesting than that. There's nothing to that but an idea that's playing out. And so in a way, we're like fictional characters embedded in the story. <laughs> you know, or you can think of it as a as a war wartime journalist on location in the war oh, yeah. taking pictures. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> we're like we're like we're like that journalist, right? And we're just like, wow, we're in this thing. It's amazing. It's like it's the ultimate video game. And you're you're actually playing it. And and in order to have fun in the video game, there's a kind of suspension of disbelief that takes place that you, you start to identify with that character that you're playing. And you're like, yeah, I'm so into this game, you know? And, and, and you're just like, I'm totally Scott, you know, I'm this guy, you know, it's so, it's a good game. Maybe sometimes the game sucks, but sometimes the game is great. But anyway, it's the ultimate game, isn't it? Where we're all, I mean, we're, there's so many perspectives. There's so many different characters you can play, and and you just get. But the thing is, you have to play one at a time, because you're inside this boundary of this dissociated altar of consciousness, and you and you think that's who you are based on your limitations, right? But in fact, you're you're the whole you're the whole game. You're the programmer. You're the whole world. You know. So what are the are, philosophical the whole, ethical implications the of that? I mean, so this is where it gets tricky for me, where I'm like, all right, I mean, the Christian uh, principle of like, you know, do unto others makes a whole lot of sense then if they're literally like, you know, equal opposite used in a different form. This is the namaste thing, right? Uh, this is, I get curious when, um, like, uh, I, I forget the mathematician now. Oh, gosh. Um, he had Penrose tiling. We talked about this actually at the SyncBook Summit because we were talking uh, in a weird way, the one I went to, not the one you did. Um, back in Boise, we were walking up in these hills, um, uh, a few people, and 
we started being like, what if, um, you know, all phenomena of consciousness is really localized in like seven people holding the vibe. I mean, the Beatles kind of allude to this in, um, I don't remember if it's yellow submarine or whatever, but there's some, it's like somewhere in the tower, there's five magicians. And it's like, right. Uh, like I'm wondering what the dynamics of what holds. Well, that, that would be a kind of solipsism that you're describing, which I've always usually solipsism is one person, but it could be extended to a, a number of people. So let's say there's seven magicians that are imagining everything. Um, but that that's assuming that everything is happening in their minds, right? But then somehow they inhabit their minds are part of their physical bodies and they inhabit a physical universe, presumably. And 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 so we we pass the buck and we say, Oh, they're they're in the more yeah. real universe, and we're <laughs> just in this imagination. But and this is the idea of uh, the same idea really of um the simulation hypothesis that we're in a computer simulation and that the computer is actually the real thing that's in a real world. But what, what would distinguish the difference between the simulation and, and the real world? And no one really has an answer for that. And so, and then couldn't that real world itself be a simulation inside yet another, even more real computer in another world. And then couldn't that one be enough? You see, it goes on and the argument collapses um, reductio ad absurdum, it goes on forever. And so we don't have to make these suppositions that there's a more real world out there because we are inhabiting DMT, the, the real world ourselves. <laughs> I'm wondering, I don't no, know. No, I haven't. I don't, I don't need it. Oh, I wouldn't yeah, suggest I don't, I don't do it. it. But the, for one time, I mean, I've smoked it a few times, but there was this one time basically launched through my crown chakra. I'm in this hyperdimensional space that's both and simultaneity, kind of what you're talking about. So I'm physically present, but I'm also in this Egyptian situation talking to Egyptian deities, which was kind of disconcerting um, because it's like, I'm in my room. Cool. Oh my God. It was nuts. I'll have to tell you about it sometime. But, um, but it felt more real than here. Like I was like, oh, I'm very aware that I've put my head in the um, the dish, like in Snape's uh, office or Dumbledore's office in Harry Potter, where they're like, let's yeah. go into that projected hologram of the memory. I forget what it's called. It's not a Palantir. That's um, Lord of the Rings. Um, but anyway, uh, it, I've heard that described it, before, where people like in near death experiences, they'll go out and they'll they'll go into the Christian heaven. They'll go into another different. There's like different bubbles. You, you can go into the Egyptian one. You know, you can go into all these different theme parks where people are, you know, out in the afterlife, if you like. And there, what there are other worlds. And, yeah, but it felt more real. And there's, it's they may, they may feel more life. real. They may feel more real than this reality, but there's still layers of the onion. You know, um, they have their 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 time and their place, if you like. They have their their reality and. It, I think it's it's good and healthy to experience these things and, and go out into the beyond and and, and come back and, and then be able to report on it. We're but if you're reason. really going to get the point of this experience is you have to embrace this experience as being a human and, and not just try to get away from it. But I think it, it is healthy to, to experience those things and come back and say, wow, there's a lot more to this than I thought. But I guess I'm here. I must be here doing this video game for a reason. You know, I'm I'm going to embrace that because it sure is interesting, and there's such beauty in this world, and we don't want to miss certain things. You know, and I think yeah, don't we, worry, I'm not pushing drugs. It's all too easy. 
<laughs> no, it's it's all too easy to uh, to ignore, um, and and drugs are a great way to to experience these things. But I think that they become kind of a trap for people that think that they have to always get away from their 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 mundane reality. But and that's the transcendental vibe of trying to get out. But what I'm I'm advocating is the imminence, the the, yeah. the God within that the that's here and now is quite a profound thing too, you know? Um, In my so house, I think it's a balance. It's yeah, a balance my, between those two. My father's house are many mansions, as they say. So I think there's whole lots of flavors of experience to be had. And it seems like you're saying we, I mean, it seems like we've allowed ourselves the preference of having a bandwidth capable of only experiencing consciously certain levels that though, you know, the dream body might be a different thing than the physical body. I mean, this gets into models of the soul and all sorts of, you know, worldviews. Um, do you have any particular world? I mean, idealism you're saying, but it's like, do you dip into Buddhism or are you, uh, is there some kind of structure that you think does justice to the language that you're speaking yourself in, in a parallel? Well, I have a lot of admiration for certain traditions like that. And I think each spiritual tradition has its own gems and, and its beauties. But um, I also admire the purity of geometry and that it is kind of baggage free and it's accessible to all being a universal language. And so I advocate experiencing these deeper levels of reality just by the simple, simple act of drawing. I mean, it, it, anyone can do it and you don't, you don't need to take drugs or you don't need to um, be in a, a spiritual tradition to do it. Although those things can are, it doesn't take anything away from those things. Those things are still there, but geometry is, is a great way of, of kind of, going deep within um, without any baggage, without having to understand. That's the, that's the amazing thing is understanding just adds to the beauty of it. It, it. it enhances your appreciation more, but it's not a prerequisite. You can have these experiences blindly by just by going into the qualities of geometry or as you said, through drugs or spiritual traditions or Presumably in other ways as well. Holotropic breathwork is one where you use oh, rhythmic yeah. breathing to works. bring yourself into this this other altered state. Yeah, you know. And as you mentioned this, I'd like to bring up something further without drugs, which is uh, it's called Lucid Light. So Lucid minus Light dot com, and I experienced this myself like two weeks ago. It's simply a light that's, I guess, I can only assume high powered. I don't know, but it's like flickering according to a certain rhythm and in a certain pattern. And what it does, it creates like 2 to 2.5D, I would say DMT style patternings, which you can then see. And I can only assume that is somehow related with the you know frequency, but then of course very much with the pattern recognition of your own visual cortex or however other patterns, belief systems, whatever etheric stuff is behind that. It's just highly interesting. And I'm mentioning this because the... I guess he's also maybe also a doctor or researcher or something who presented this. He said he also does this, of course, for therapy and also actually to create these shared spaces of understanding and relating to each other. Because again, just like you said, no matter your religion or your particular beliefs, anyone could lay down on that lamp for 10 minutes and have a super interesting experience that they could share with others. But it's not... It's too abstract in a sense or whatever to be, to be dogmatic yeah, or to be easily misinterpreted because it's almost also too random in, in a sense or, or yeah 
I think you can grab what I'm saying, but just to point it out that this is a, you know, a, can be a, extremely valuable. Well, what I find in, in the workshops that I've done live um, is that when, when you guide people into these states through geometry, it's how I do it, but presumably you could do it in a variety of ways. But when you take people into deeper states of reality, where things seem more real and more, more honest and true and beautiful and all these things that are great, they're wonderful peak experiences, but then people kind of meet each other there at a deep level. And the sharing that happens is really amazing because you're, you're not just talking about superficialities that are trivial small right. talk, but you're talking about like deep archetypes within you. And that's where people can really become transformed because you're, you're relating and you're help, other people are helping you just by listening to you. When you're, when you're in that state, when you're deep, deep within and you're talking and you're heard, it does wonders for people. Um, and what's beautiful is it, it, it's not a religion. It's not a, it's not a baggage. There's no, you don't have to believe anything. It's just something you can do if you want. And it's not, it's, it's kind of amazing because it, it's all happening within you, within your deeper self or um, what I would call your higher self, or a, it's actually a more expansive um, part of you that, that uh, you're accessing through this intelligible language of consciousness. It just kind of makes sense that everybody who's conscious can understand this. If we, we've talked about how, if we could communicate with aliens, we'd probably use geometry or music. Well, if you want to communicate with your higher self, you can also use geometry or music to do that because everybody understands that. Well put. Raphael, I'm kind of curious about your, I mean, if you want, you don't have to um, express maybe the dynamics of what you think higher self and self here are. And then I wanted to kind of steer it into Scott, like what are these workshops you're doing? What's this new book? Um, like what you're up to basically. Yeah. So, very briefly put, I think we have probably a very similar view of what higher self is. I'm not even going to get into it too much. I would, the, the thing I would have said is it's just yourself, the next level up, you know, the, again, with a boundary unto itself and so on in some ways, but it's just, you know, next level, probably around that theme park level, maybe one up. Yeah. <laughs> and when you talk about your book, what I'm really interested in just for my own synchronicity, and we already mentioned aliens and crop circles, how you came to choose the cover. As you chose it because i briefly saw it and looked pretty interesting well, yeah i'll show you this is um it's a drawing I, I made an illustration i made it's an impossible uh figure right the so-called impossible geometry but um the reason i chose that was because much of the philosophy in the book it has these three aspects like i was mentioning the intelligible the visible and, and the invisible um or the universal mind the 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 physical body and the, and the immaterial soul. And so there's this trinity aspect of it, but it's also a paradox. Consciousness is kind of a paradox, like this impossible kind of shape is a paradox. It is, um, it's who you are, but the mind can never really understand it because the mind is bounded and consciousness is not and so the finite can only take notes and kind of get an idea of what the infinite might be 
but you are really the infinite bound in this finite container. And so that's kind of why I wanted to go with not just a straight ahead geometry, but one that implies this kind of transcending this impossible condition. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Thank you. Jim. It actually reminds me, I mean, I don't know how into the um, Stanley Kubrick front of the sync book group you are, but um, one of the elements of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I actually read the book first in high school and thought it was mind-blowing. Like if I was going to be a material reductionist, I was like, that's a good model. Like I like that. But um, with the um, basically the monolith being, um, I guess, a, a different dimensional kind of perception through film, film, basically celluloid. So it's like, oh, we're in this whole universe and it's actually a film. And that's kind of the whole Jupiter and beyond, I eat 42, 242 here, um, the, beyond the infinite, right? So it's like, how can we, how can the mind apprehend things that are beyond its domain? And that's kind of what Kubrick was trying to show at the end, where it's like, it's beyond time, which is like, I'm seeing my old self and there's my baby and now I'm a universal higher mind reborn or, you know, whatever's going on in the trip scene at the end. Um, I think, uh, and it, there's part of us, I think oh, that there's, yeah, there's there's part of us that that is totally comfortable in that realm, uh, and then we have trouble trying to make sense of that afterwards when we come back into into the the mundane. We, we try to. That's where we we it gets lost make in it translation because yeah. we don't we can't so we can't food. really express. It. I can't think about yeah. fractals all day. I gotta digest something or whatever. Right, and I got bills to pay, and I gotta do you know work on that. Um, those are considerations we have, but they're not, we're not at our highest when we're, when we're doing the mundane stuff. I think it's, it's when we're reaching out and we're trying to comprehend our container, pushing against that boundary and trying to figure out who am I? Am I just this, this skin and this, the, this bag of meat? Or is there something more, you know? And I think that's the human condition where we're always trying to figure it out and, and make sense of why we're here and what it's all about. What's it's your natural. witness for discernment? Uh, because you seem like a kind of a uh, filter. I think you're a natural filter for like, I can handle woo, but I don't want to dwell there. Like what you're saying, it's like chop wood, carry water. There's real shit to do. So I'm wondering how you, what, what your personal litmus for like more or less valid thinking is like, wh where's the, where's the praxis for you? Where it's like, Oh yes, maybe Stanley Kubrick was painting a meta, cognitive painting for us but it's like but i gotta go to bed now because i need my cycle you know what how do you how do you use discernment yourself in these kind of heady kind of thoughts i don't know i think it just comes naturally um just the practical considerations of living and chopping literally chopping wood or you know doing the things one needs to do grounds a person i i'm overly grounded maybe because i'm a triple virgo right but it, it's really easy for me. Now, you being a Gemini, you're more up in the air and I'm flying gone. around and you're it's all bad. over the place. Yeah. And there's a beauty to that because you're going to taste all the different things that are out there. Whereas I'm, I'm less likely to, to be motivated to, to do that. But um, I guess one of my strengths is that I'm always grounding it. When I, when I go out in these flights of fancy, I'll just say that that's crazy stuff. I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in exploring that or or maybe there is some kind of benefit amongst all that material that i'll 
I'll record and I'll say, I remember, I'm going to remember that because that was really cool, but I'm not going to like join a cult and, you know, do crazy stuff because I just discovered something. Sure. sure, you know? sure. Um, I guess one more question and then we'll, we'll tie it in your book and we can start winding it down. Um, given that you are trying to ground and be practical, how did you get, what was your entrance into esotericism and do you still like mess with magic like that? Like, was it kind of a but flavor of the I week call? I would just call magic is kind of understanding reality, and, and once you once you have that deeper understanding, it's natural to want to use it. And I think that's just all conscious beings. Once they understand something, that then they use it. They are like we're monkeys, and we once we have a tool, we'll use it to stick in and get the ants out of the uh, of the termite mound, or or we'll use it to like whatever it is. We'll use it. So. Where was so I going like with that? I mean, Matt, like esotericism and these kind of models are maybe practical dreaming for you. Yeah, I think it's more like entertainment in a way. You go out and you you discover some cool stuff, and you're like, "That was really cool." And now, what can I do with that? Can I make a video about that? Or, you know, what what really happens is I just follow my inspiration, mm-hmm. and wherever that wherever I think you can't go wrong really if you just follow your inspiration and what you think like what you want to do next is re- that's where you should that's what you should do because um, I think you're being guided by your higher self and maybe even other spirit guides that are part of your cohort um, in the invisible they're they're kind of hoping that you will listen more and and then when you are in the right wavelength you'll start to get information and you'll start to get inspiration, which can then result in creative actions that you make in your life, in the world, in what in in the relationships you have, that you'll start to move, you'll start to to do something, to have an agency that you want to do this all of a sudden. And so I think it's very important to thought, to nurture that and try to get in touch with your own creative impulse. And then when, when you do have that flicker of like, I have this feeling that I want to paint this thing. I've never painted anything, but I just want to try it. Go for it because you never know what's going to come out of you. So and that's the surprising that, thing. Yeah. I'm like sorry. Cut things. No, you never, never apologize. I don't care. Uh, cut me off all day. I cut myself off and others constantly. Um, yeah. The things that come out of you. I mean, you've written a book, you're doing workshops, kind of tell us what one would expect with that. And um, maybe some highlight experiences or, you know, you were talking about people kind of meeting in a transcendental grounded place. Like, we've, you know, it's, it's. Yeah. Interesting, so um, so the pandemic has kind of caused everyone to kind of reevaluate their lives and what they want to do. Right. And for me, the most, the peak experiences that I've had are about sharing my passion for geometry and, and sharing my, my love of, I don't know, just the beauty of a total solar eclipse is just like a mind blower that I want to share with people, that kind of thing. Or that the sun, the, the earth and the moon fit these simple geometric diagrams. That's just amazing and beautiful. And I want to share that with people. And so I was talking with my friend, Jeff Fitzpatrick in Ireland uh, and I've done a couple of sacred geometry workshops with him in the past in Ireland. And we were kind of bemoaning the fact that we can't do it right now because of the pandemic. And maybe we'll be able to do that again in a year or something. But um, we're thinking, what can we do to move the ball forward with that? And we 
for the last six months, we've been like zooming kind of like every day or every other day or something like that and developing this whole curriculum and sacred geometry Academy. And I built this great website called sacred geometry academy.com and um, put all my secrets in plain sight blog up there and all my sacred geometry products up there. And what we're most excited about though, is our workshops our live workshops that we're doing online. And our first one is starting on September 2nd. And so if you want to check that out, just go to sacredgeometryacademy.com and there's a, a link for workshops there and you can't miss it. And I give away a free course on that. That It's a 90 minute uh, video course that everyone is welcome to take free of charge. And it really gives you a feeling for where I'm coming from and where my friend Jeff is coming from and how we're putting together these live workshops to give people this, this, feeling of geometry that that many people describe as being sacred. And so it's really focused on the geometry. You do the geometry in this mode, and then you have this feeling of like, that was just beautiful. That was amazing. And, and that's where we go, where you start to use this universal language to go deep within. And then Jeff is kind of, he's had hundreds of workshops he's hosted in the past doing um, large scale uh, mandalas. And uh, so he has a lot of experience holding workshop space. And one of the things he's really good at is, is the sharing circle and getting people to, you know, just providing the space for people to share what comes up when they're deep within. And I think that that's incredibly valuable. And that's what we experienced in Ireland when we did it in person. So we, what we've done is we found a way to do this online. So you don't have to, you know, you don't have to go on a international flight and pay all this money for the trip. You can just do it in the convenience of your own home. Now, being there in person is, a, is, is kind of the, the creme de la creme type of thing. If you can afford that one day, we're going to offer those, but it's not for everyone. But these, these online workshops are very kind of democratic in that they're much more approachable and doable um, because you, you can do it in your own house. And I, I highly recommend it. What we recommend is everybody draw with a with a physical medium, with a pencil, the compass. I mean, I say physical, but we know they're just ideas, right? But um, we're going to use the we're going to use our whole bodies to do that, and that's the best way in. Is to like you know use your hands, and it's not just Tactility. a mental. It's, it's not just a mental yeah. thing that you you see on the screen, and, and it's not knowledge. It's not just the knowledge. But it, it's the it's the full experience of it that transforms people. It's the it's more about doing than than and about and it's more about being in that space than it is about gaining knowledge. Like I've spent my whole career teaching people things, and and I can do that, and I do that all the time. But that's not what this exquisite sacred experience is about. It's it's a little different. It's about it's about more about being and and participation than it is about just gaining ideas that you have in your brain. Well said. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, especially as a Gemini, you're a Virgo, which is Mercury ruled as well, but like information is a drug for us. Um, and then sometimes uh, we can be junkies, basically. So it's like getting in that kind of practical uh, modality of just stilling the mind and being embodied is uh, a gift that's, and a privilege. I think that's, 
it's very helpful. But for you and for others like you, I do have a course that's a bonus that comes for free with the workshop, which is my constructions course. And it has like hours of video content explaining all that detail about how to draw a heptagon, how to make a seven, a nine sided figure, how to do this, how to do that. And so I have all that encoded in that course that you can watch and do, but that's not necessarily where you get the feeling of sacredness. It's not just know the knowledge, the know-how that's more like a, that's more like a similar to a quantitative course where that, like I would teach how architects, how to draw, you know, and that's, that's all this knowledge that you need. And so it's all about gaining that knowledge, but that's, that's not where the sacredness comes from. It's, it's from doing it yourself, you know, and, and, and allowing the geometry to work on your consciousness. I think it's, it's a process that's most akin to remembering because when you get into it, you you kind of remember, Oh yeah, I remember this. This is how I made the universe, you know, when I was in a bigger container, but now I'm in this human container, which is so tiny, but I remember this stuff. It's the same language that was used on all levels. And it's refreshing in a way to see that again and to remind yourself of it and go, Oh yeah. And there's nothing more refreshing in a way to get re reacquainted with this kind of pure truth that comes from like drawing a pentagram or a hexagon or whatever shape it is. You can't argue with the perfection of that. You know, that that's a true experience and it transcends culture. And I think when you have a, a true experience like that with a capital T, it, it, it also could be described as a beautiful experience because where you have that, that kind of transcendental truth, you also have transcendental beauty, you know, um, they, they're one and the same. Um, that's, a, that's a, one of the great things about it is it, it's all coming from that simple act of, uh, of drawing. So I encourage people to check it out at sacredgeometryacademy.com and take the free workshop and see if it's for you. That's what's up. I really appreciate you coming on here, Scott. Um, it's, it seems like you're doing the, the great work in your very particular flavor. So props to you, high fives. And, um, but basically, yeah, people check it out. I mean, what do you have to lose? You expand your consciousness without psychedelics. You can do it with number and ratio and form through drawing. Very tactile, um, very part of the history of what it means to be human. So go out there and kind of explore these shapes for yourself. I actually just recently watched this episode of Deep Space Nine where, I mean, it wasn't a long situation, but Odo is this shapeshifter and he had like a mini shapeshifter for a second. And he's like, explore what a circle feels like, explore a triangle. And this is like very similar, you know, essence of vibe. So yeah. That's um, cool. You yeah, know what I really miss? I really miss those episodic experiences. Like I grew up with that, you know, watching an episode that's kind of self-contained in a way. And it may have some themes that then go into the other episodes, but it's unlike the modern show, which isn't episodic at all. The modern show is just a snippet of what's happening and it leaves you with a cliffhanger every time, you know? And I, I miss the kind of, wrapping it up with a bow, which is what they used to do with these episodes. They were more like little, little morsels that you could digest and just say, that was so yummy. I love it. I want another one. 
Yeah, it's like um, almost like the um, the angles of the corner of a shape. So you're looking at each part, but it's of a whole. Whereas maybe modern television and stuff is, uh, they're just not worried about the whole picture like that. Um, and people they're more binge. worried about getting you hooked. Yeah. And, and and come back because you need to answer these these things we've left hanging. You know, and I in a way that that's it, that's a genius way to keep people strung strung out and strung along. But it, who killed Laura Palmer? It's less satisfying in a way. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it is. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I um, don't want to take up much more of your time. Is Are there any kind of, I mean, you've said it so eloquently. I don't really know other, you basically did a plug and a final thought, but if there's anything else you wanted to express, um, feel free to do so now, obviously. No, I just, um, that's what I'm up to lately is doing the sacred geometry stuff. I think that all my secrets in plain sight exploration kind of boiled down to discovering sacred geometry is the most important thing. And so I've been focused on that and, and I hope to share that with as many people as I can. So thank you for the opportunity to reach out and let people know about what I'm up to. Definitely. You're an interesting character in the dream, sir. Uh, and I appreciate you and I appreciate what you're doing. So I'll check it out for sure. Personally, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to go check out this free little course and take a taste and see if I can handle it. Because I'm the guy who got a five, uh, an F on my report card in like middle school and math. Like math is not my thing. So, um, it's, you know, a lot of people have That's that, a different that type feeling. of math, though, for sure. Because, you know, please go on, Scott. You yeah. can explain it better than I could. <laughs> I've seen that in my work. I, see, I, it's hard for me to relate because I was so good at math and everything like that. But I do understand that a lot of people have these blocks and these fears about drawing. But I think you could probably draw a line along a ruler, right? And hold your hand steady and do that. I hope so. Everybody could. You could draw a circle with a compass, right? And you can focus and line up like where the lines cross and stuff like that. That's all you got to do. Next up, Those are the skills. Here we go. Those are the skills. That's all you got to do. It's so easy. That's what's up. Well, thank you for giving us your time. And we'll definitely be putting the links and stuff so people check that out. Um, yeah, guys, there's so many diverse characters in this dream. I am way on the wave, though I haven't been exploring it with this panpsychic mentalism kind of thing. So we're in agreement there. And now it's just a matter of uh, trying to be... Well, it's a, it's a remembering, right, of how beautiful and true things are while in process. So it's this weird alchemical super in, as Jung would say. But uh, Raphael, are there any kind of thoughts you want to say? I'd just like to thank you very much and just briefly mention to anyone who had listened closely or watched, at least to me, very many highly resonant themes also with, let's say, the topics of hermetic law and even some particular, let's just call it etheric, alien aspects i'm familiar with highly interesting how of course as with all good mysticism and those you know who've had a glimpse of the structure it's all you can recognize the pattern right and you can then again you know maybe label it differently or approach it a little bit differently but many of the core concepts very much in line going so far as to this three-partite structure you mentioned and also that's why i was asking about the trinal i'll send you something later so you can see the at least uh I want to say imaginary, but um, visual uh, correlations which are there. So anyways, thank you very much. And thank you so much for sharing this, I would say, most vital uh, information and also del delivering it in a way that it can actually be experienced, embodied, so everyone you know, can have their own connection to their own higher self and truly discern and follow their own highest excitement. So thank you very much. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Adios, Scott. Live long and prosper. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>